Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Greg Brockman. Greg is a co-founder and CTO of OpenAI. Greg, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Hey, why don't we get started, as is the tradition here on the podcast, with you telling us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in AI. Sure thing. So I got into programming, I guess, relatively late. So after high school, I took a year off and went abroad, was working on a chemistry textbook. And I sent it off to one of my friends who had done something similar in math. And he wrote back saying, there's only one problem with this, which is that you don't have a PhD, so no one's going to publish it. So you can either (laughs) self-publish or you can make a website, try to promote things that way. I was like, well, I guess I'll figure out how to make a website. And so I went online and taught myself how to code and build a little sample table sorting widget. I thought that was cool. And I built something bigger and bigger and never really looked back at the chemistry. And one of the early things that really captivated me was the idea of being able to write code that could understand things that I could not. Right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the way that you write code, that you build systems, you think hard about a problem, you understand it. You write it down in this very obscure way that we call a program. And suddenly anyone can get the benefit of what you just did. And if there was a way to amplify that and to have programs that could do things I didn't have to even understand myself, then suddenly the set of problems you could solve would be so much broader. And how'd you get from, you know, building a website to that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I read, I read Turing's 1950 paper, Computer Machinery and Intelligence. And Mm. when you read it and, you know, he's talking about the Turing test and that he has this, this picture of by the year 2000, you'll be able to build this child machine that will learn just like a human child and Uh will get full intelligence. And this was in 2000 nine that i was reading this paper and Uh it's like where is that machine why isn't anyone built it (laughs) nice and so throughout college so i ended up doing a bunch of a bunch of different startups and ended up transferring so i started out at harvard i was there for a year and a half before going to mit i was there for a semester and a half before leaving to go work on stripe where i was the cto for five years and built that from four people to 250 employees it's now around a thousand or so and kind of for me, the, the, the goal has always been to work on AI. It was just a question of when and the right way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And while, while I was working in the startup world, you know, if you read Hacker News and if you look at what's, what's happening, it's, you see all these articles on deep learning does X, deep learning you know, for Y. Right. And the thing that was very unclear to me from the outside was substance or hype. And I'd actually done some similar investigation on, on Bitcoin. You know, from the outside, Bitcoin similarly is something where you know, there's a lot of people talking about it as a substance or hype and had really done a deep dive and kind of concluded that this was 2014, that I, you know, it's kind of people weren't really focused on the right things, that if people were focused on just, you know, kind of speculation, not about building products, delivering value, you know, it still might be the case that the Bitcoin will, will, will succeed. But I had a very different observation when it came to deep learning and, and AI and what was happening. And I realized that a lot of my smartest friends from college were now in the field and that things were starting to work. Mm. Or in, in a very real way and solve tasks that you just couldn't have solved another way. So the fact that things are actually happening, that you can actually build systems that can have real world application and that it's also still very much at the very beginning of the S curve. For me, it was very clear that the moment is now. And I was talking to a bunch of people in the field. I was talking to Sam Altman and he put together this dinner with 
Elon Musk and Ilya Sutskever and some others. And the focus of this dinner was clear that things are happening. Things are moving very quickly. How can we best have a positive impact? How can we help ensure that this plays out in the best possible way? Mm -hmm. Because AI is just going to be the most transformative technology that humans ever create. And just having some, you know, any kind of contribution to making that play out better is the most worthwhile thing that I can imagine. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion was that it seems like it's not too late. It's not impossible to build a lab with a lot of the strongest researchers in the field, especially if you focus it on this goal of this technology. It's not enough just to build it. You also need to think about how do you make sure it actually benefits everyone. And, mm -hmm. and so we had that as our hypothesis. And you know, I, at the time, had, had left Stripe a couple months earlier and said, well, I'm going to go full time on, on trying to make this happen. So we put together a team and in December of 2015, launched at NIPS, announced that we existed, and since then have been working on going from zero to pushing the envelope of what is possible in this field. Yeah, yeah. And for those who aren't familiar with with OpenAI as an organization, you know, what does it look like today in terms of the number of researchers and what's the what's the model? Like you see folks that are affiliated with OpenAI that are affiliated at other places as well. How have things played out, you know, since then? Yeah, so so we we tend to think of ourselves as cherry picking the best parts of academia and the best parts of industry towards a okay. very focused goal. And OpenAI at the end of the day is a serious play to build general intelligence and make sure that it plays out well for, for society, plays out in a safe way. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we don't know how to build something like general intelligence today. So you, you need to do fundamental research, you need to push the limits of what's possible. But it's also the case that field has really transitioned from being an individual sport to being a team sport. Really just this year, and maybe maybe some in 2016, you were able to start using large clusters of machines much more productively. In 2012, Google had the cat neuron, which is 16,000 cores, but were able to be surpassed by, by two grad students on a GPU and, to, and uh, two GPUs. And today, th that's a very different story where you have people training ImageNet in 15 minutes on 1024 GPUs. And so right. when you look at something like our Dota project, which we'll talk about in a bit, which really require this team of people with engineering backgrounds, with research backgrounds, all coming together towards a shared goal. And so the way that we structure ourselves is that we have we have a few different teams internally. So we have a robotics team, we have a Dota team, we have a few other teams, and people, we have the, the full mix of skill sets that are required to accomplish a goal within those teams. We also have infrastructure team that is more of a horizontal team that supports the work of all of these different teams and accelerates the work of those teams. And one thing that we're increasingly seeing is collaborations amongst the teams, which ends up being a really powerful thing where we can take code from from Dota and use it for robotics and really okay. accelerate what's possible there. Hmm. And can you speak a little bit to the, you know, the open aspect of open AI? It's, you know, clearly something that was important to you in setting out on this journey, but at the same time, there's been some critique of the level of openness at open AI. And there's still some things that, yeah, I think you're, you know, clearly publishing a lot of research, but folks have asked, you know, are you publishing, could you be doing more in terms of publishing data sets and things like that? You know, how do you think of that? I think that's a great question. And I think that that's one misconception that people have had uh, since the beginning of OpenAI is I think people have put kind of a narrative that's very different from what we were trying to do. And I think it's, it's, it's a really good thing to, to ask about. Mm -hmm. 
So the goal of OpenAI is to ensure that the world post-general intelligence is good for humans. And along the way, it's really important as as a organization that that we both like one, one thing that we think about a lot is what we can do to both accelerate our organization, but then mm-hmm. also things that we can do to help accelerate the field and things that we can do to deliver value to the world generally. And right. the, the the last one ends up playing out on multiple timescales. So there's very short timescale work that you can do. Like for example, today we we published we released a few more algorithms in our baselines project where we have we've done high quality implementations of all the standard reinforcement learning algorithms. So now okay. rather than people having to and basically end up with a bad baseline that then they say, oh, my new method is, is better than this one. You can just take the work that we've done to, to well-tune all of these baselines and use that. And so that's mm-hmm. a short timeline delivering a value. The thing that we really are trying to do is a much longer timeline, right? It's really about build an organization that can be at the forefront of this research and to actually be able to steer how it plays out in society. And so to do that, it's not as simple as just take the work that you that you do in real time and, and and toss it over the fence or you know put it up on GitHub. I think it requires something much more thoughtful. And so I guess a lot of how we think about it is that OpenAI will be a success if you fast forward five, 10 years or to whenever you're whenever the, the appropriate checkpoint is and you look back and you say that the amount of value that we delivered over the long time frame was the max that we could have. And some of that I think is that in the short run, it means that we don't necessarily publish or release code to the maximum extent that we possibly could. That is always made with the choice of because we think that we are going to be able to better deliver value over the long run. And specifically meaning, you know, they're clearly publishing code has a cost to it, has resources that are associated with it. But even more so, you know, once you publish it, there's some you know, rightly or wrongly, expectation of maintaining that over time that also has a cost and all of that, those accumulated costs, you know, potentially slow the organization down or kind of, you know, require ongoing resources. Is that specifically the the thinking or is that just part of it? So that that is that is a real one for sure, right? And again, like one weird thing about this field is that the technologies that are being developed are ones that are very desired by big companies. Right. Yeah, and yeah. You look at the Googles and the Facebooks and they're pouring massive amounts of resources in this. And mm-hmm. so to actually have an impact as a nonprofit, which, you know, we're resourced, but it's very different from the level of resourcing that you, that you would see at, at one of those companies that you really have to answer the question, what is it that I'm going to do that is the differential impact? How can I make the most, get the most bang for my buck, make sure that sort of the differential impact of this organization existing is as large as possible? And so that means that having a large open source project that lots of people are using is very, very valuable. But there are lots of other people who would do the same thing and where, where it's sort of as much more, you look at TensorFlow, right? That that's something that's great for Google because lots of people are using their tools. It means that when they hire people that they're using the, the same platform. And so the incentive exists for the big companies to do that. And I think the thing that, that we view as unique to us is really thinking about this AGI problem and thinking mm-hmm. about... How do you make sure that when it comes to, you know, there's kind of two problems that are really core to AGI. The first is, well, you're going to be building this really powerful system, right? You should imagine you basically are going to train like the goal, you know, general intelligence, like what, how should you even think about that? What even is it is mm-hmm. going to be a system. And I think for the purposes of this conversation, we should define it as a system which can perform any economically valuable task as well as a human. And so 
if you can build that, first of all, to train it is going to require a lot more compute than to actually run it. You know, let's say that yeah. you're going to need a bunch of agents that each one of those agents is going to run much faster than real time in order to train. And so you should kind of think of whatever system you're going to build. Well, there's going to be this massive data center that's just going to be sitting idle while you're running your, your single AGI. And so really, you're going to have the ability to run lots of them from day one. And so you should kind of think of the thing you're going to build as this organization of the most competent person you've ever met that are all working together in concert towards a shared goal with no ego. And so, you know, it's going to be a pretty powerful system. And, you know, today we have lots of, we have lots of companies that are organizations of people and are able to accomplish pretty, pretty wild things. And I think if you can do build the kind of system I just described, that it's, it's, it's really hard to see what the limits of those, of that's going to be. And so the first thing you have to ask is, is it going to do what we want at all? And this is, what is referred to as you know technical safety and a problem that, that that we work on. So one one step towards the solving the technical safety side that, that, that we've done is this human feedback project in collaboration with DeepMind. And the idea is that the core problem on technical safety is that you need to be able to specify goals to the AI. The AI somehow needs to listen to you. It needs to reflect human values. It needs to you know sort of do what humans want in some pretty deep way. And so there needs to be humans in the training process somewhere. And the human feedback project that, that we worked on is this first step in this direction where a human labeler is shown two videos of a behavior and that they just click on which behavior is more like the one that they want. And we're right. able to show that with 500 bits of feedback that you're able to train an AI to do some backflips. And so that's step one. And this kind of work is something we think is really important. And it's a little bit taboo to talk about in the field, right? The idea that, yeah, you could build these systems, they're going to do anything crazy. And I totally understand why, right? I think that there's there's several motivations for that. One is that the field has gone through these, these hype cycles of booms and busts and winters, and that to really think through the, well, what if this all succeeds? What if it works? Is something where if you're just going to go through another cycle of that, then then there's really no point. And there's a second thing, which is that I think people really reason from what the computers of today can do, right? You take your Pascal GPU yeah. and sure, you can train a great image classifier, but are you going to be able to train anything better than that? And mm-hmm. the answer is, well, not really. But there's really two things that are changing that I think people don't see that are going to really accelerate the kinds of models that we can run. The first one of these I alluded to earlier, which is the fact that you can now use data center scale in order to get better performance. and Again, this is 2012, basically two GPUs. You get severely diminishing returns beyond that. That's state of the art. 2014, you could do eight GPU training, and that seemed great. And just mm-hmm. this year, Facebook did 256 GPUs, ImageNet in one hour, and someone else just did 1024 GPUs, ImageNet in 15 minutes. And so you mm-hmm. get this mm-hmm. massive scaling of the kinds of models that we can run, the kinds of systems we can train. There's a second one, which is the acceleration of the neural net hardware. And if you look at everything up to 2016, it's actually very smoothly Moore's law, even though it's not driven by the same factors as Moore's law, which is which is pretty remarkable. So if you if you look, you can actually look in. There's this diagram from Ray Kurzweil's book where the data cuts off at 1998, and he just fits a double exponential to it and predicts exactly, basically exactly correctly, the 2016 Pascal GPU is right on the curve that's predicted from from this data just cutting off in 1998. And so very smooth Moore's <laughs> law all the way through. But this year, something weird happened. This year, we ended up with an order of magnitude increase in the number of flops available for running neural nets. 
you know, these numbers are all public. So there's the Volta off the top of my head. So 2016 Pascal GPU is like 20 teraflops. The Volta came out this year is more like 90 teraflops. And Google TPU 2.0 is more like 180 teraflops. And so there's Mm -hmm. really this explosion this year. And the thing is, we really expect this kind of acceleration of the compute available for neural nets in in a small compact package to continue to accelerate much faster than Moore's law. And there's a very simple reason. The reason is that you can, that neural networks are very, very parallel. And just like the brain is this big network of, you know, it's just a bunch of tiny little cores. They're all talking to each other and there's some learning rule and there's some propagation rule. And the way that we've always designed hardware is much more for serial execution. No one's really had this incentive to design this massively parallel hardware before. And so there's a lot of low hanging fruit. You don't need to invent any novel technology. You can just use you don't have to rely on, on transistors getting any smaller in order to get these speedups. And so if you combine these two things, data center scale with faster neural network accelerators, suddenly the compute available for running our models is going to really skyrocket. And so that's kind of the perspective that we have is that things are going to be different as a result of the hardware coming online. Timelines are always tricky to predict exactly, but I think that we're going to see even just next year, I think if you just look at what we could do a year ago and what you can look at right now with respect to image generation with respect to voice generation i think in 2018 as long as we continue to see the compute coming online in the way that we expect that we should be able to have perfect video generation we should be able to have basically perfect speech synthesis as well and this kind of this kind of acceleration in terms of the capabilities is going to be really tied to well we have all these ideas for these models but we need the compute in order to run them and as long as we get, get that compute, that I expect to continue to see the capabilities increase in lockstep. So mm-hmm. that's, one, that's thing number one that's really important. Thing number two that is extremely important is the question of, okay, so let's say you build an AGI that does what humans want, that reflects humans' values. So whose values, right? And who, is, who are the people who get to specify what this AI should want? And that's a much harder problem, right? right. You know, the first one is a technical problem. That sounds like a thing where, you know, if it, you know, as, as these systems play out, we're very good at solving technical problems. If you can actually build this kind of very powerful system, like there's good reason to believe that if you put in the effort, you should also be able to, to make it safe and, and, and solve that, that technical side. It's not easy, but and you have to really want it. You have to really try to, to, to solve that problem. But it seems like a thing that is, is solvable. The thing that's much harder is this non-technical problem of who owns mm-hmm. it and who specifies the goals. And that, that is something that is also very core to OpenAI and how we think about the value that we're delivering. And that we really want this technology to be something that is not just benefiting one corporation, one person, even one small subset of people. We really want this to be something that is benefiting the world. And we have ideas around the right way for that to play out. But I guess when it comes to how do we think about open, that's exactly how we think is solving those two problems. If we can do that, then that is the most important thing any of us could imagine doing. Mm-hmm. On that latter point, in terms of whose values are those things that you have, you know, ideas about but haven't turned into projects yet, or are you doing? Are there public projects that you've been working on that speak to that second item? Yeah, so it's it's something we spend a lot of time thinking about. I think that we haven't yet done kind of public speaking about about our thoughts there, but a lot of what we've been spending time doing has been building relationships with a lot of people in the field, a lot of people in governments, a lot of people just in in various positions who I think will end up being influential with respect to how this technology plays out. 
and and this kind of I think it really is trying to lay the groundwork for where we hope things to go. Mm-hmm. One of the themes that kept coming up as you were speaking was this notion of like a timeline or time frame for AGI. Do you do you have one that you kind of you know manage to, or you know, is there a general agreement within OpenAI and and the, that community as to you know when we think AGI is going to happen, or even the time scale? And and maybe as some context for this, I don't think I've told this story on the podcast before. Maybe I have, but relatively recently, I was with some fellow entrepreneurs talking about we're just kind of catching up and someone pushed me on, Hey, so, you know, on this AI safety issue, I didn't use those words, but like, are you a Mark Zuckerberg or are you an Elon Musk? (laughs) You know, and I tend to answer that question like, well, you know, it's kind of in the middle. I think, you know, there's a lot of sensationalism, but he kept pressing, pressing, pressing for me to answer. And one of the things that occurred for me in thinking about this was that, you know, if I think about who Elon Musk is, his time frame is probably way longer than mine, right? You know, mm-hmm. the guy's like building rocket ships. He's thinking long term, right? And I tend to answer that question in in terms of, you know, I think people really over overblow what, you know, is likely to happen in 10 years. Yep. Right. And so I, I wonder, you know, with that as context, like how do you think about the world, you, Greg, and and open AI more generally? in terms of the time frame for worrying about and thinking about these kinds of issues? Yep. Timeline is a really interesting and hard question. It is the hardest question. And I think this is true for any technology. If you look at the invention of flight, people, all the experts in the field, right up until flight was created, were saying flight is for the birds, that Newton had proved that heavier than air flight would never happen. And then you have the Wright brothers doing their flight just a few months later. If you look at kind of any transformative technology, it is really the case that it's hard to distinguish exactly when it will happen. I think that there's something very inherent to this because if people knew, oh, okay, here's a timeline to it, then you would just focus more, work harder and accelerate that timeline. And so it would turn out to be inaccurate. And mm-hmm. I think that, <laughs> yeah, the way that we really think about it. So I think Elias Rudkowski had a good blog post where he talked about something that he, he did and he was listening to a bunch of AI experts saying AGI is very, very far away. And he went up and he asked people, okay, tell me what is the least impressive accomplishment that you're very confident is not going to happen in the next two years? And people really didn't have a good answer. And, mm. you know, how can it be that you both have thought very, very deeply about, okay, like it's going to take this long, it's going to take exactly this long, here's when we're going to deliver it, and also don't have a, okay, here's something I'm willing to bet this is the least impressive thing that just we're not going to do in this timeline. (laughs) And I think what's really going on, I agree with the conclusion that he has there is that people don't really have a good concept of it, right? People don't really have that in general, people end up picking with their gut rather than through, through having like really rational, here's exactly the the factors that are going to enable it. And here's why we're not going to be able to do it in the near term. Besides the fact that while I look at what my, you know, I look at my, my dumb AI agent where I'm trying to get this thing to even be able to tell a cat from a dog. And mm-hmm. can you imagine trying to build something as smart as me? Like, right. you know, it's just right. there's this disconnect. And so the way that we think about it is that, well, we certainly know that some things are going to be changing. And I think that specifically the hardware is going to change in a way that people are not expecting right now and is faster than Moore's Law is not something that people price into their their internal sense of, of what's happening. And there's a question of how far does that take you? On what timeline does it take you there? And the thing that's important to us as an organization is that regardless of what the timeline ends up being, 
that we are able to have the influence that we want, that we are able to ensure that this thing plays, right. ends up playing out well. And the second part to that is that, well, you can also say, so you don't know when the super transformative stuff is going to happen, but you can say something about what is going to happen in the near term, what is going to happen over the next five years. And again, mm -hmm. it's very clear we're going to be able to do synthesis of perfect videos. You know, you look at what's the 2020 presidential campaign going to look like when you're able to generate the kinds of videos that we already see we can we, we, that we're very very close to being able to do mm -hmm. that there are a bunch of, of technologies robotics is a perfect example where to date there's been some you know there's there's been results of learning on robots but that none of the roboticists are impressed because all of the tasks that people can accomplish are worse than what the roboticists can already do and so if you talk to roboticists they say okay you know come back call me when you can do something i couldn't do in the 70s and that's going to change. And the moment that you change that, the moment that you have your first learning-based result that blows away what was possible without learning, I think there will be a sea change. Like we've seen this in a number of other disciplines. We saw it with vision pre-2012. You go to the big vision conference and there's like one neural net paper if you're lucky. And now there's like mm -hmm. basically everything is, is neural nets and vision. Like I don't think anyone even remembers that it was, it was different. And I think that on robotics that it's pretty clear that you know, humans aren't getting any smarter. We're not getting any better at, at thinking through these problems and, and being able to program all the rules for exactly what a robot should do and how it should react. And I would say that the fact that you're going to have learning come in and really change what is capable, what robots are capable of, I think is going to be massively impactful. And so that's how we think about it, is that the big goal of AGI is something where you can't know, you certainly can't know that it's close, but I also don't know that you can know that it's super far and that we also know that there's going to be transformative applications in the near term. And so for us, the mandate for us, the way that we operate is stay on the cutting edge, make sure that we're pushing forward and always be asking, how can we ensure that our integral over time of, of value delivered is as large as possible? <laughs> That was a, a non, I'm not giving you a timeline answer. Yeah. <laughs> very, very well stated. But so you did give two examples of applications where you think we'll see transformative short-term things happening. One is audio and video generation and the other is robotics. Are there specific examples of kind of leading indicators or examples that are leading indicators that kind of give you the confidence that those two specific things, for example, you know, will change pretty dramatically, pretty quickly? Yeah. So I guess on the robotics front, so we work on robotics and, and this is, is our goal is to be able to, to change and to, to really unlock robotics through, through learning methods. And it's actually interesting because the way that we think about it, the way that we work on robotics is that we are geared towards trying to build general technologies rather than trying to maximize robotic capabilities and that that steers the set of projects that we're going to work on and the ones that we're going to pick. But I think one thing that we're really excited about is if we succeed, we stay focused on AGI, but can also enable robotics to, to really kick off. And what's, what's an example of those two things in opposition to one another? So one perfect example is that I think that there, there's so many really positive applications that we're going to see in robotics over upcoming years, like elderly, elderly care robots, a perfect example, right? Where that's something that I think is going to deliver value to a lot of people. It's going to really be transformative to a number of people's lives, but it's also not necessarily something that 
that we're going to work on ourselves. That the kind of thing that we want to do is to build the underlying technology that would allow that application to happen, but stay focused on pushing forward on new applications rather than productizing. Got it. So is that is that different than you know where basic research as opposed to applied research, or is that is there another nuance to that? Yeah. So I'd say I'd say that we're kind of halfway in between. Because when I think basic research, and I guess it might depend per field, but when I hear basic research, I think of the individual sport type research, right? Of people kind of off on their own, thinking deep thoughts and coming back when they have something that seems cool. And that for us, that we really try to take results and push them to the limits of scale. And with our Dota system, that that's exactly what we did, where rather than just show that, okay, here's some system that can kind of work on, you know, in some toy way, actually work on a really hard task. And that I think the thing that distinguishes it from applied research is that we focus. So solving Dota is clearly not going to be something that is going to be transformative to many people's lives. I mean, it's, sure. you know, it's transformative to a subset of people, but not in the in the, the kind of direct impact that one would have in a more applied setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I saw recently that you know, is it a bit of an example of what you're suggesting will happen to videos? The NVIDIA recently published some work using GANs to generate these synthetic celebrity faces. Did you yep. see that one? Yeah, absolutely. That was incredible. That was incredible. Yeah, I was going to bring that up as another leading indicator of, of this kind of thing. Yeah. And so, and we've already seen like there's some other research. I forget if it was related to GANs or another approach where you're able to, you know, given kind of static photographs, you're able to kind of create three-dimensional and, you know, change the expression of, on the photographs. All of these, like the pieces are all in place yep. or near in place to create these perfect synthetic videos. Yep. Although yeah. the full end-to-end thing isn't quite there yet. Yep. And you know what you need to get the full end-to-end thing in place? What's that? Compute. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's it? Is that that's your, it's For- just compute? For that particular problem, I think that our ideas are really proving out. And if we were able to run at larger scale, that we'd have a really good time. And I think that it is, I think, really important to also drill into this story around compute, because it's not as simple as just you take the code that someone someone already wrote and you just run it on more GPUs and it's magically going to solve the problem. But Mm -hmm. it's much more that it's like compute in this field is just like particle accelerators in physics. If you don't have the particle accelerator, you're just not going to discover the secrets of the universe, right? You're not going to mm-hmm. have your breakthrough. If you have mm-hmm. the particle accelerator, it's not just that you just, you know, some, mm-hmm. somehow like the physicist is not useful and just, you know, is just translating like ideas into, into experiments. It's that you now have this tool that fundamentally allows you to achieve the result that you were looking for. And that that's really where we are on video generation is that yeah. we have ideas that are clearly like in the right space. And maybe we need some additional tricks. Maybe we need to do some additional tuning. But if we're able to run at much larger scale than we are right now, then we can actually try out these ideas that we have. And I think that the the converse is also true. That is that if, for whatever reason, we were to freeze the level of compute that is available for running these models, that progress would would really slow down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your earlier point about, you kind of hinted at this a couple of times in the conversation, but... You know, I think one of the things that contributes to our ability to, you know, predict, well, a couple of things, I think, 
contribute to our ability to, or the difficulty we have predicting when AGI happens is, I don't know that we've like clearly, maybe I should phrase this as a question. Like how well defined do you think it even means to have achieved AGI? Like is, is it absolute or is there like a minimum viable AGI product that would suffice? Mm -hmm. Yep. I think this is a good question. I kind of think of whenever I think of the question of how do you define the AGI? What is an AGI? What will an AGI look like? I always think a little bit of, are, have, you, have you heard of bike shedding as, as a term? Bike. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So it always feels <laughs> You should like explain it, it though. You should yes. explain bike shedding. So the, idea, the, the idea behind bike shedding is, so let's say that you're designing a, a nuclear reactor. So what you'll do is you'll bring in these you know, experts and kind of the experts will tell you things. And honestly, like if they tell you like, you got to do it this way and like, this is really important. You'll probably trust them and say, like, okay, you do it. Like, you've got a lot of experience in this. This is great. Like, go off and run with it. But when it comes to, okay, we're also going to have this bike shed outside and what color should it be? Everyone's going to have an opinion, right? Everyone feels like they are an equally qualified expert to talk about bike shed colors. Mm -hmm. And I think that with intelligence, there's something similar here where we all have our own conception of intelligence, what, what it's like, what's hard, what it is that we do, what's going on in our heads. And so I think that. The question of, okay, well, this system that you built does this, but it doesn't do that. What is AGI going to look like? How hard is it? When is it going to arrive? I think these things end up being approached kind of like the bike shed where everyone has their, their daily experience and kind of fit that to, and, you know, I think it, it, one thing that is true is that no one is truly an expert in AGI, right? We haven't mm-hmm. built it yet. And so right. anyone who is claiming that I've got this special knowledge it's a little hard to take that at face value, right? You can't go to university and say like, well, I got my, my AGI undergraduate degree. And <laughs> right. Yeah. And built five of them in the course of getting it. Right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And so I think that, you know, the, the bike shedding term is like, I think kind of a, a negative one usually, but I, I view it in this almost positive way where we have such like intelligence is just so fundamental to us and who we are. And this notion of what it even means to be human that everyone has thought about this, you know, thousands of years ago, people were, we're speculating about what it would be to, to build a mind and, and what goes on inside of our own heads. And so and I think it's actually kind of this, this marvelous thing that people, people care so much. But the flip side ends up being that you almost have this, this philosophical debate that becomes very irreducible. And so the way that I think about it is that to the extent we're going to try to resolve philosophical questions that have been standing for 2,000 years, we are probably out of luck except to the extent that our technical progress informs us. And so, for example, we now have a much better sense of what it's going to be to build a mind than Aristotle would have. So it's not going to be some big rule-based system. It's not going to be most of the things that you might have expected. It's going to be a big statistical system. It's going to run this massive parallel fashion on a bunch of cores. And you you can kind of describe things like that. Is it going to be matrix multiplies and taking gradients? Well, that's a different question, right? And, and the, you know, we have right, we certainly right. have not resolved that that yet. But I think that the the question then of okay, so what is an AGI? A lot of how I like to to frame that conversation is to kind of sidestep the deep philosophical questions of do you need to have something that's conscious? Do you need to have something that that kind of fulfills other notions of, of intelligence? And really just focus on what can it do? Can you build a system that is able to accomplish any economically valuable task that you put in front of it? And I think that is something where you can you can tell right i think that you can tell if another way of reason about this is if you took a human and you wanted to figure out is this person a general intelligence is that something that you think you could test and this is 
you know, we certainly spend a lot of time trying to assess various people's skills and capabilities on various different axes. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you can almost think of it as deciding if you built an AGI as giving it a bunch of different job interviews and seeing if you want to hire it. And I think that there's that this kind of framing of there are deep philosophical questions, but at the end of the day, you can think about it instead in terms of very functional, what is the system capable of? And the latter is something we're able to do. The former is something that is fundamentally very hard. Mm -hmm. I also think that this, that this framing really raises a second point, which is, well, is this, you know, it's a very, it's a very utilitarian kind of view of the kind of system that we're talking about, the kind of things that we might, might want to build. And why should we want to build something like that at all? You know, if mm -hmm. like it really opens this Pandora's box of what does it mean to be human and what is the value of humans and how do we make sure that humans have, have meaning and, and, and really a place in the, in the resulting world. And right. that is, I think the, the hardest problem. And that is something mm -hmm. that is, you know, something that's very core to open AI and, and how we think about this technology is that it's pretty clear that like, I think indisputable that in the short term, that companies are pouring in tons and tons of resources in order to make advances in AI which is different from AGI. I think that the amount of resources going mm -hmm. to that is smaller, is more, right. more focused. But I think that as it feels closer to people, as people feel that, wow, look at all this progress in AI, feels like, you know, kind of my, my, my internal neural net is telling me that this could actually happen. And then you start thinking through the economic value that would be delivered by that system and how important it could be for X company or Y company. I think that that will change. And then I think that the question is not so much about accelerating the timeline to AI, but it's really about ensuring that this technology plays out in a way that isn't just one company gets all the spoils, but is really about humanity is ultimately the winner. Right. You know, it may turn out, we may get thrown a curveball here, and it may turn out that the technologies and techniques that allow us to create AGI are totally orthogonal to the ones that, you know, we've created in the process of trying to create AI. But, you know, from where we sit now, it certainly seems like, you know, to the point of all the pieces that we discussed that go into creating these videos, like they're all kind of right in line with the kinds of problems we would expect to have to solve in order to get to an AGI. Yep. So all of that huge investment that is you know, profit driven, if we can say, you know, on the part of the many of the companies, most of the companies that are investing in those technologies are, you know, maybe accidentally push us closer to this AGI. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's actually pretty interesting that there's this classic mantra in the field that as soon as you're able to do it, it isn't AI anymore. And that right. people said this about chess, <laughs> right? That yep. chess is the most important thing and that only, you know, some Predictive super intelligent typing. thing. Exactly. And it turned out all of that stuff once it happened, people are like, ah, that's not AI. I think that this is dead. I think that this way of people reacting to things we're able to do is now different. And you look at AlphaGo, you look at Dota. And for these systems, there really is something going on in them that is very akin to intuition. It's much deeper than simply performing some big search and being very dumb and making up for that dumbness with just having your massive brain. And you think about the image generation that came from NVIDIA, and that's something where humans can't even sit down and start to think about how you could write the rules for it. And so I think this is a very encouraging thing. And I think that there's, a, there's, there's kind of this, this piece to it, 
which is what's really going on right now is that if you look at the problem of trying to recognize a cat or dog in an image, trying to, to recognize objects and images, that the space of images is this super complicated, very high dimensional space. It's a high dimensional manifold. It's uh, There's this fundamental complexity in that domain. And so for the human to, to write down all the rules for that would be a pretty massive undertaking. And so what we've built is that we have these systems which are able to absorb the complexity of the domain and able to kind of configure themselves around and that you've got this neural network that's got these millions of parameters and that's just not something that exists in the natural world it's not something that we're used to and it's able to, to reconfigure itself and to to really absorb all of the the inherent that inherent complexity and i think that the ability to do that is what really distinguishes this learning revolution from AI previously. And now it might turn out that there are limits to what we can do with our learning algorithm, but it's also kind of crazy that the learning algorithm we use, backpropagation, was developed in 1986, right? And how can it be right, right. that you know that this algorithm and, and really neural nets in, in some ways date back to even you know, maybe, maybe the 60s, maybe the 40s, depending on how you count, that these very simple very obvious ideas that you couldn't run on your, you know, your particle accelerators, if you, if you will, you didn't have the particle accelerators to, to run the experiments, but these simple ideas turned out to be so powerful. And I think mm -hmm. there's something really fundamental there that I can't decide between two different explanations. One is that intelligence is fundamentally simple, that right. there's a, you know, I can, I can kind of back explain some explanation of, well, if you had something that was complicated, then it would have a very large prior and so you're kind of baking this prior and so yeah you shouldn't expect it to be very general the more depressing version of this is that well maybe we're just really bad at making anything complicated work <laughs> uh-huh but if it's the first and i think there's a lot of evidence that really indicates that it is the first then i think that's very encouraging that the simple ideas if you implement them correctly if the mathematics if the mathematics works right if the math kind of points in the right direction if you implement it correctly you scale it up massively then you're going to be able to get things that things will happen that you weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. and, and one thing that's really weird to me about the kind of, of progress that I see is that I've seen on, on repeated occasions, algorithms that work better at large scale than their designers expected. Right. And so mm -hmm. we've, we've seen this with, with, with algorithms here where talk to the person who invented it and they say, Oh no, that's not going to work for X, Y, Z reason. And then we scaled up really large and actually works really well. And I think that this is going to, this is, this again, for me as an engineer, is totally contrary to experience. For me as an engineer, it's, you really only get, if, if you're lucky, the kind of performance that the person was intending. And as soon as you're 10x the scale, 100x the scale, good luck. Everything starts to break, right? Totally, totally right. broken. Is there more to that than just more data and more data, you know, fixing more problems in, in terms of, or more data basically covering for our lack of sophistication in the algorithms themselves? Yeah. So, so it's, it's something like that though. I would I'd phrase it a little differently, which is that like, I think that the algorithms that we have are fundamentally capable of absorbing all the compute and data you can throw at them. And mm -hmm. the, the, the data question is also an interesting one because the thing that people are used to is supervised learning where you have this big static data set that enca encapsulates your world knowledge. But right. where things are really shifting is towards more of the reinforcement learning paradigm. And if you think mm -hmm. about it, that's where you want to be, right? You want to have an environment that you're interacting with that you're able to change. That you have this dynamic feedback loop going on. And mm -hmm. there, you suddenly have upgraded your 
environment. Like you can think of your big set of images as just a static environment. And now you've upgraded to this very dynamic world. And there mm-hmm. suddenly you're, you sort of are able to get infinite data, or at least you can, you can spend a lot of compute to get a lot of data, right? If it's a video game like Dota, you can run this on many, many cores. If it's a robotic simulator, you again can spend a bunch of, of compute there. If it's a real world, eh, okay, you know, you're in, you're in for a little bit of a harder time. And so maybe you do something like Google did with having a big arm farm. Maybe you do something else. And I think where we really want to end up is that we want to end up in a place where the limiting factor is the amount of compute that we can throw at these models and where we Mm -hmm. can have massive generative models that have absorbed a lot of world knowledge that you're able to do things inside of that. And we can't run those models yet today. Like we're at the very, you know, sort of we're at the very nascent edge of what I expect we're going to be able to, to do with generative models and with this, this kind of approach mm-hmm. model-based rl is kind of the the term that term of art that a lot of people use but i think that in upcoming years we will be able to see lots of progress based on these ideas of scale up use algorithms that can absorb all the compute and that that can make up for lack of data that can make up for lack of everything else mm. and what specifically does model-based rl refer to relative to just rl yeah so the idea with with model-based rl is that if you have a it may be learned or maybe not learned in some way model of the environment that you query and you can kind of explore within. It's kind of like you as a human, if you, if you're, you know, picture your house and picture walking around mm-hmm. your house and you can kind of plan things out and you can see like, Oh, if I you know, do this, that this, this thing will happen. And then you don't actually have to go and spend the very expensive time of, of walking through your house and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. You can see it's, it's very powerful to have this, this ability to, to plan and explore in imagination rather than the real environment. But again, it's, it's all very nascent. It doesn't really work right now. And I think that it really cannot work until we have the faster computers online. Mm-hmm. One of the things you said at the very beginning of the, the interviews kind of stuck with me as, as interesting. And that is this idea that ultimately to train an AGI, it's going to require massive amounts of compute. But then once we train it, like the actual, you know, inference letting that AGI, you know, be generally intelligent is going to require much less compute. And, you know, it strikes me that there are some interesting questions there. Like, what do we do with all that compute? You know, you addressed some of it in terms of, well, you kind of phrased it as, you know, maybe the thing that we are doing is we are running multiple instances of this AGI thing in parallel, right? So we're taking advantage of all that compute that we had to create to train it by, you know, running a bunch of these things in parallel. But it also kind of makes me wonder if maybe the AGI doesn't need to be all that general if we're, you know, ultimately segmenting, you know, the the problem space up in the end anyway. Does that question make sense? Or does that, do you see where I'm going with that? Not entirely. I guess there are two questions here, I guess. One, you know, are there other implications of of this idea that you propose that you know, we're going to have, we're going to have to build up this massive compute capability to train the AGI. And then, you know, once we've trained it, we need that compute capability less. Like what are all the implications of that? That's one question. And then question number two is, you know, if ultimately, you know, what we end up doing is running a bunch of parallel intelligences, 
you know, do they all need to be general anyway? Yep. Right. Can they yep. be, can we have a bunch of a cluster of intelligences that, you know, are really good at thing X, a cluster of intelligence that are good at thing Y, yep. you know, scale that out. And that is what we, that is what ultimately we start to think of as general intelligence. We just have a bunch of these Yep. Less general intelligences. Yeah, it makes make, makes a lot of sense. So I think on the first one, well, so one one thing that I think is worth thinking about is when you can actually build a computer system that is autonomously generating huge amounts of, of revenue or value, there suddenly becomes this big incentive to make more such computer systems. Like today, if you have a big pile of money, you want to turn turn it into more money. Well, you start a company or you invest in a company and you hire mm-hmm. a bunch of people and those people produce economic value towards some goal and, and that it kind of continues the cycle. Whereas mm-hmm. if you have a computer that is just as good as a human worker, well, then you have a big pile of money, you should build a big data center. And there's going to be this big incentive to kind of dot the, the world with with data centers. So I think that's one perspective on what happens on the compute front. Mm-hmm. I think it, it is possibly the case that you can take your big training data center and use all of that compute to run a single AI much faster and so rather than imagine if you had a Einstein in silicon that you're now able mm-hmm. to run a thousand X real time or a million X real time, that'd be pretty good, yeah. right? You know, this person sitting around mm-hmm. thinking about physics and thinking about, you get someone in there thinking about medicine and how to cure diseases. You get someone in thinking about how should we build rockets to go to the stars and, and all sorts of things like that. Like that would be pretty valuable, pretty good. It's not guaranteed that we'll be able to, to use all of that compute usefully in a single right. AI, but I think that at the very least, being able to run parallel copies of these of these AIs is something that we should expect. And then there's a question of, well, what would that be good for? And I guess when I think about these, I always try to, to make analogies to things that are in our experience today. And so in our experience today, why do we ever want to have a group of more than one human doing something? You know, it's like building companies and the tasks are hard and that you have different people that specialize in different skills and all of those things are, are things that we should expect would transfer to the systems of, of the future. And so I think it'll be very valuable. By the way, so the idea of, of a computer system that autonomously produces value, where all the interesting stuff is done by the computers and the humans just kind of stick around and clean out the fans is something that exists today. It sounds pretty dystopic, but if you look at, at Bitcoin mines, that is exactly what they are. And mm-hmm. there was a good article recently with a bunch of pictures from Chinese Bitcoin mines, which I, I recommend looking at if you want to think about kind of the, the more cyberpunk dystopic version of this stuff. And so, again, it's mm. the there are a lot of, of hazards here with the technology that we're talking about building. And again, the weirdest thing for me is the fact that that it's so that people don't talk about this in a serious way. And that I think that the for most technologies, when you're building them, you think about what happens if we really succeed. And I think that for partially historic reasons, partially for this, this reason that we all feel our own sense of how far off AGI is and how hard it's going to be and how impossible it is to even imagine building it, that really seriously thinking through what happens if it works is something that right. is a bit taboo. Mm-hmm. So that's thing one. And then question two, do you remember what question two was? I think question two was, you know, ultimately, do we need AGI at all mm-hmm. if the, the the deployment model, if you will, ends up being to or the scalability model ends up being to segment our workload into a bunch of separate things. You know, does a collection of, you know, more specialized intelligences, you know, become the thing that we initially come to see as a general intelligence? Yeah. 
So I think that's an open question or that's a possibility. The way that I think about it is, I guess, again, back to the idea of we have organizations of humans that can accomplish goals that humans individually could not. And so mm-hmm. it might well be that even though you end up with specialization, and I would certainly expect that you'll end up with specialization towards specific tasks. Like I think that that I would expect that a general AI would also have these very hyper-trained, narrow AI modules within it. And you absolutely should do that. And, and, you know, like one thing I think is is kind of interesting about today's AI systems is if you look at something like the neural Turing machine, you know, you basically spend you know, this big model, you spend a lot of compute, a lot of data, a lot of training time in order to learn how to do how to do various tasks. For example, one of the one of the tasks from the original paper is to learn to sort. And pretty cool, right? This this system learns how to sort in, you know, it's kind of learned this program. But when you really think about it, it's like I could do the same thing in Python on my core in like two seconds. Right. And so at the end of the day, if you have a specific task you're trying to solve, you can hyper optimize for that and do a lot better from an efficiency standpoint than this very general thing. And I think something yeah, similar yeah. happens with humans where we have like when you have to sit and think about something when you're not a master of it and you're you're trying to really reason how it works versus when you're you've practiced a bunch and it's in your muscle memory, right? That it's kind of like mm-hmm. this this is has gone to the the much more efficient hot path. And I think that we'll 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 certainly see analogs to to this sort of behavior. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. We're at the top of the hour. We're beyond the top of the hour, actually, and we haven't touched on the thing that I expected us to spend a bunch of time on, which is the Dota 2 project. But we covered a lot of really interesting ground in terms of AGI and what that means and what we should be thinking about. You know what? What I'm thinking we should do is maybe, you know, call this a, a part one and find some time to get together again to do part two, where we dive into the work that you've done on Dota. Sounds good. All right. Perfect. <laughs> no, this, is, this is a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Same here. Greg, thank you so much. Oh, great chatting. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Greg or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 74. To follow along with our OpenAI series, visit twimlai.com slash OpenAI. Of course, you can send along your feedback or questions via Twitter to at twimlai or at Sam Charrington or leave a comment right on the show notes page. Thanks once again to NVIDIA for their support of this series. To learn more about what they're doing at NIPS, visit twimlai.com slash NVIDIA. And of course, thanks once again to you for listening and catch you next time.